Welcome to the Institute of Buddhist Studies podcast. The following is part one of Dennis Hirota's 2010 Rukoku lecture titled Shinran's Phenomenology of Religious Life. Professor Hirota spoke at the Institute in March of 2010 over the course of three days. Please be sure to download this complete series of lectures from our website at podcast.shin-ibs.edu or directly from the iTunes Music Store. Good afternoon, everyone. Nice to see you today. Welcome to uh, the 2010 Ryukoku Lectures uh, at the Institute of Buddhist Studies. We're very privileged this year to have as our our special lecturer from Ryukoku University, Professor Dennis Hirota. Uh, many of you, I'm sure, if you haven't met him, you've, you've seen his name. You've read perhaps many of his writings. He's a very prolific writer, uh, a very well-known translator, of course, uh, and one of the foremost uh, thinkers, contemporary thinkers, uh, about Buddhism and Shin Buddhism today. So we're very fortunate to have him for uh, three sessions. The topic of Professor Hirota's talks will be Shinran's Phenomenology of Religious Life Toward a Rethinking of Shinjin. Uh, so, uh, please uh, give a warm uh, welcome to Professor Dennis Hirota. Uh, thank you very much, David. Uh, I'm very happy to be here this afternoon. <clears throat> uh, last week, I saw the interior of this building for the first time, uh, and as I was being shown around, uh, several images from the distant past uh, came to mind uh, probably uh, more than 40 years ago, probably close to 50 years ago. I recall attending lectures in a small hall in the back of the Berkeley Buddhist Temple uh, just across the parking lot from here. Uh, lectures uh, that were part of the program, I think, of, of the early uh, Buddhist Study Center, uh, which was then housed at the Berkeley Temple. Uh, and I also remember uh, from about the same time uh, the elderly uh, Reverend Imamura at the time, uh, perhaps in his house on Ellsworth Street nearby, uh, explaining to me his dreams uh, about uh, developing uh, the Buddhist Study Center. Uh, it's perhaps a sign of age to feel so surprised that these things occurred now almost half a century ago. Um, but I uh, feel deeply indebted uh, to a long line of people who have worked very hard uh, to uh, create uh, this center uh, here in the States uh, and to uh, develop a place uh, where uh, Shin Buddhist tradition uh, might be studied uh, and nurtured uh, in the West. Uh, I have taken uh, for uh, the theme of the series of lectures uh, that I am to give here uh, Shinran's Phenomenology of Religious Life Toward a Rethinking of Shinjin. Perhaps the emphasis should fall on the subtitle, uh, the second part, the idea of rethinking Shinjin. My chief interest uh, is in the understanding of what Shinran calls attaining Shinjin, uh, Shinjin o u, Shinjin gyakutoku. 
this uh, notion of Shinjin, sometimes translated as pure entrusting, is, of course, at the core of Shinran's teaching. Uh, Shinran uh, speaks of Shinjin uh, sometimes in a way that seems translatable as true and trusting, uh, but of course, uh, one of the major developments of his thought uh, is his understanding of Shinjin as itself the mind of Amida Buddha, uh, the mind uh, that is given by the Buddha to, to beings or called forth in beings uh, by the Buddha. Uh, what I would like to suggest in the three lectures that I give, uh, and this will run as current uh, through all of them, uh, is basically uh, just three things, and I will uh, state them here. First, uh, I think uh, there are general assumptions that we often make about Chinran's concept of Shinjin, both in Japan and in the West, that tend to distort the understanding of Shinjin, of Shinran, by viewing his thought uh, within conceptual frameworks or ways of thinking that are at odds uh, with his teaching. I, I'm, I'm not on the handout yet, uh, so I'll, I'll just make a few preliminary comments. Uh, I will, in the course uh, of the lectures, uh, give a few examples, uh, both uh, from uh, Japan and from the West, I think, uh, about what I have in mind when I say that there are distortions. Basically, uh, in modern terms, in contemporary terms, it is the imposition on Shinran of a kind of common notion of faith, where faith is thought of as the attitude a person takes uh, towards a teaching, a religious teaching, uh, towards something taught in the, in the scriptures. There's often the idea that when Shinran speaks of Shinjin, he means that a person listens to or reads about Amida Buddha or the primal vow and accepts what is asserted in the teaching to be true. There's been a great deal of concern among Shin Buddhists in Japan, especially strong uh, since the Edo period, to get the teaching exactly right, to understand it very precisely and correctly. And lists or compendia of complex doctrinal issues have been drawn up and used regularly for study. Uh, and in the West, there has been a very strong inclination uh, since the first introduction or actually the first contact of uh, Westerners with, with Japan uh, in the 16th century, a very strong inclination uh, to compare Shin Buddhism uh, with Protestant Christianity. And we see uh, this kind of uh, or, uh, comparison, I think, ongoing uh, in much of the work uh, in the West uh, as it continues. Uh, part of this, of course, is due to the close resemblance in certain symbols and doctrines uh, between Protestant Christianity and Shin Buddhism. Uh, but there tends to be uh, an assumption uh, that Shinjin uh, is uh, identical with a popular Christian notion uh, 
or a popular notion of uh, Christian ideas of faith. In either case, uh, my concern uh, is with a presupposition that underlies this conception of faith. Uh, in particular, the assumption that Shinjin, even if it is given by Amida, is an attitude uh, that is taken by a person towards what is asserted in text, or that it is a relationship between the self uh, as an inner subject uh, and the teaching of Amida and the Pure Land as its object. And finally, it is taking this dichotomy between subject and object for granted or as a presupposition of simple common sense. And this seems to me basically at odds with Shinran's thinking. My second suggestion uh, in this series of lectures is that this general problem of distortion is not necessarily recent or modern or Western and that it was not unknown to Shinran himself. In fact, it is perhaps the major issue in the Pure Land teaching for him, and it is precisely what he sought to address in his concepts of self-power or hakarai. This may seem obvious, but it presents us with a question that is not adequately answered, I think, in traditional Shin Buddhist studies. We can insist on Shinran's unique interpretation of the term echo in the larger sutra, the idea. Usually, uh, echo is uh, merit transference, the transference of uh, the merits one has acquired through the performance of practice. And Shinran, of course, turns this around and says uh, in certain passages that echo is the activity of Amida Buddha giving his mind to us as Shinji. We can accept this doctrine, this teaching, and yet still maintain almost unconsciously the deeply ingrained presuppositions of the self as autonomous subject, assuming an attitude of trust toward the teaching. What is necessary for our understanding, I think, is a model to replace the usual modern conception of faith uh, as simply a natural and common sense, a natural understanding. And my third uh, suggestion uh, derived from this uh, is that it may be helpful for our understanding of Shinran's message in our own intellectual and cultural context to consider Shinran's writings together with certain movements of modern Western thought. Today, uh, in, in the second half of this presentation, I will take up an essay from Martin Heidegger, but my suggestion is not that Shinran is somehow validated by the similarities in thinking with Heidegger or that uh, he precedes him and essentially that he got there first. Rather, it is simply a suggestion that looking at Heidegger together with Shinran may help us see things in Shinran that have tended to be overlooked or that have not been explored systematically as significant themes in traditional Shin scholarship. These would include 
themes such as truth, temporality, narrative, and so on. I, in my title, I use the term phenomenology, which I have borrowed uh, from Heidegger's expression, the phenomenology of religious life. Uh, this is a work um, from very early uh, in Heidegger's career. Um, but I use the term phenomenology rather loosely to refer to a general style of thinking. Phenomenology is, of course, a major Western philosophical movement of the 20th century with long and continuing influence on methods of the study of religion. I think um, recently um, this has become a, a major approach in comparative religion or world religions. Uh, from my perspective, what is significant in phenomenological thinking is the attempt to explore concrete, lived human experience without the imposition of presuppositions about the nature of what is real, and in particular, without assuming the subject-object dichotomy or reifying either a center of subjective awareness or reality as a totality of substantive objects. I think these two aspects, the rootedness in actual daily experience and the rejection of common sense notions of self correspond to fundamental dimensions of Shinran's religious awareness and that we tend to lose sight of them or uh, tend not to catch sight of them when we presuppose a common concept of faith in reading his writings. In any case, this is the general thinking in the series of lectures that I will give. Today's lecture will consider the ideal, idea of truth. Again, this will be in the second half. Truth uh, is, of course, uh, a central term for Shinran. And I think uh, it has to be considered a basic element in notions of faith, uh, where faith is the acceptance of some sort of uh, Doctrine, doctrine or uh, uh, doctrinal statement um, as true. Um, at least that's what I take to be a kind of common sense or uh, ordinary notion of faith. Uh, and as I say, I, I will turn to that in the second half of today's session, uh, but I would like to uh, spend the first session uh, considering several uh, preliminary topics and I, I will turn now to, to the first handout. Um, this is notes for lecture one, uh, the Shin Buddhist path and truth uh, one. Uh, and, and the first part is a, an example, I think, of a consideration of the problem that I have uh, posed concerning the distortion of Shinran's teaching, um, this one. Uh, from within the tradition. Among Shinran's surviving correspondence are three letters addressed to his disciple Joshin, all responding to questions regarding the teaching. Now, uh, uh, the Shinran's correspondence, um, his letters, they, they are 
called correspondence letters, shōsoku. Uh, uh, but in fact, uh, most of what has been preserved uh, stems from very late in his life, uh, from his late 70s. Uh, in Shinran's period, of course, a life expectancy uh, was certainly no longer than 50. Uh, Shinran lived to be over 90, so he, he lived a, a very extraordinarily uh, long life, uh, particularly for the times. Uh, and it was very late in life uh, that he wrote the letters that survive. Um, as many of you know, uh, Shinran was exiled uh, in his 30s, uh, and then uh, after he was uh, pardoned from exile, uh, he uh, journeyed to the Kanto region, uh, uh, present-day Kamakura, Tokyo uh, area, uh, where he spent 20 years in propagating the teaching. And then around the age of 63, uh, for reasons that are uh, still debated, uh, he returned to Kyoto, uh, where he had been born, essentially leaving behind uh, the large congregation um, that he had uh, nurtured, built up and nurtured there uh, for several decades. Uh, but after his return, uh, probably uh, particularly uh, from the time that he had reached uh, his mid-70s on, uh, numbers of uh, doctrinal issues, uh, misunderstandings of the teaching um, arose among uh, his following in the Kanto area. Uh, and so uh, his disciples would write to him uh, uh, with questions uh, and much of the correspondence uh, that survives today uh, was written by Shinran uh, in answer to specific questions. Uh, <clears throat> and so, uh, although uh, they're termed letters, they are in fact uh, rather brief uh, expositions in Japanese uh, of the teaching. Uh, and, and the letters that I will refer to here are that kind of letter. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, so uh, uh, Shinran writes his replies to a disciple named Joshin. Uh, as I note uh, um, in the footnote, uh, it is not clear who Joshin was. Uh, I don't think there is any other information about him. Some of the disciples, of course, founded temples and uh, have uh, their lineages which survive to uh, today. Uh, Joshin is uh, unknown at present, and it's also unclear whether all three letters addressed to Joshin are in fact addressed to the same person. Um, but in one of these letters, one of the three letters, uh, in one case, atypically uh, in the traditional collections of Shinran's correspondence, even the text of the initial question is communicated to Shinran. Uh, I'm sorry, even the text of the initial question communicated to Shinran uh, has also been preserved and transmitted. So we have not only Shinran's own response or exposition, uh, uh, but uh, the original question. In all three cases, however, the gist of Joshin's original query is clear from the summary Shinran gives in his reply. 
In other words, uh, Joshin's question takes the format of a concise presentation of his own understanding of a particular issue with a request for Shinran's assessment. Uh, Joshin would write out uh, his own understanding and Shinran would sort of mark the paper. Um, and from Shinran's response, we, we know generally what the questions were. While in two of his responses, Shinran generally affirms Joshin's understanding, in the letter quoted below, uh, the answer is ambivalent. Uh, and I'll, I'll read it. This is Shinran's response. I've read your letter thoroughly. In your question regarding the Pure Land Buddhist teaching, you state that at the point of the awakening of the one thought moment of Shinjin, what is grasped and protected by the unhindered light of wisdom compassion, Hence, the karmic cause for birth in the Pure Land is established in ordinary times. This is splendid. Yet though you speak thus splendidly, it appears to have all turned utterly into your own calculative thinking. A calculation here uh, in the original Hakarai uh, is, of course, a, a, a common, a, a very important term for Shinran, and strongly uh, negative in that it is a synonym for self-power. Uh, in, in the original, uh, given here on the page here, watakushi no on hakarai ni narinu to oboe soro. This watakushi here, not the first person pronoun probably, but referring more generally to, to self, so, so self-calculation. Uh, calculative thinking, um, sort of uh, e egocentric uh, uh, thinking, basically, in Shinran's meaning. Uh, and it's interesting here also the expression, nari uh, nu. The nu is a, a, a kind of uh, uh, I forgot my English grammar. Kandyo. Uh, uh, it's uh, a, um, a an expression uh, uh, for um, the, a, pa a state that has come into existence uh, in the past. So has uh, become. Um, uh, but uh, what is interesting here is this: the expression "new" is also. Uh, has the implication of something that has come about uh, spontaneously and uh, naturally. Uh, <clears throat> in other words, not intentionally. Uh, so perhaps uh, the meaning is uh, that uh, although uh, Joshin has uh, studied uh, the, the Pure Land teaching uh, and uh, although he is very earnest, uh, somehow his efforts have turned into uh, this kind of self-power. Uh, from, uh, from the exchange in which the text of Joshin's own letter has been preserved intact, and this is a different letter, uh, number seven in Lamp for the Latter Ages, Matosho, it is evident uh, that he is both studious and reflective. Uh, and he, he has a high level of learning, uh, um, he has studied uh, Shinran's teaching uh, very diligently. Uh, 
and uh, in his question, uh, he seeks on the basis of sutra passages and Shinran's teaching to formulate a logically satisfying and consistent understanding. We can also surmise from Shinran's replies uh, that divergent and diverse interpretations of the Pure Land Path have been circulating among people of the Nembutsu, causing confusion and occasioning questions from disciples. In the passage above, we see from Shinran's summation that Joshin is seeking to work out the practical implications of the awakening of the one thought moment of Shinjin and here Ichinen Hokki. Perhaps the crux of Shinran's interpretation of the Pure Land Path. And as I mentioned before, uh, this attainment or realization of Shinjin that occurs in one thought moment really lies at the very core of Shinran's path. But while Shinran first praises the content of what Joshin has written, uh, saying this is splendid, he goes on to deliver a stern admonition. It appears to have all turned utterly into your own calculative thinking. I wonder whether, particularly for those involved in Shin Buddhist studies or Shin Shugaku, this passage does not pose fundamental questions regarding the contours and significance of the academic study of Shinran's thought. In its starkest form, it is a question of whether one's own work remains confined within the boundaries of our self-affirming calculative thinking, or hakarai, or whether it is genuinely guided by and illuminative of the enlightened wisdom that Shinran asserts lies at the heart of the Pure Land Path. This is not to suggest that an intellectual understanding of the teaching is meaningless or detrimental or that in Shinran's view, the Pure Land Path demands something akin to a blind faith. Shinran does continue in the letter quoted above, once you have come simply to trust that it, that is uh, Amida's vow surpasses conceptual understanding, there should be no struggle to reason it out, or hakarai. Uh, but in his uh, but the postscript to this letter, uh, and the postscript is the following phrase, other power means to be free of any form of calculation, indicates that what Shinran terms becoming free of calculative thinking is not simply an attitude one can assume, but manifests the working of other power. Uh, so this is not blind faith, it is not simply a reasoned acceptance. Uh, something else uh, very different is involved in Shinran's teaching of the realization of Shinjin. If Shinchugaku as an academic discipline takes as its primary object of investigation what Shinran terms Jodo Shinshu, uh, the true essence of the Pure Land Way, and not merely Shin tradition as a set of abstract Buddhist concepts or objectified historical and social phenomena, then surely it must take Shinran's reaction to Joshin's letter seriously. Even though Joshin has mastered the terminology and grammar of the teaching, Shinran indicates that he may have gone astray so that what is most crucial 
in the tradition has not been grasped. Uh, and I, I speak here of the terminology and grammar of Shinshugaku, and there, there is very much a feel of this, this kind of, uh, uh, of statement, I think. Uh, in other words, uh, in Shinshugaku, there's a tendency to study a certain vocabulary uh, and to learn to manipulate it in certain ways. Uh, and, and then you ask the right questions and you come out uh, with the right uh, kinds of statements as a result. Uh, so, so it is, it is I, I think, very similar to, to a kind of language learning of terminology and proper grammar. If the reasoned elucidation of Shinran's Pure Land Path is a central work of Shinchugaku, and does this make any difference? And does it not, in fact, make a decisive difference? It is not inappropriate, I think, to correlate Shinran's cautionary response to Joshin. Though you speak thus splendidly, it appears to have all turned into your own calculative thinking with this fundamental distinction between the teaching that is true and real, Shinjitsu on the one hand, and that which is temporary and provisional, Gonke or Hoban on the other. And th these terms are, uh, are very basic in the structure of, of Shinran's uh, teaching. Uh, and there's a very striking passage, uh, which I, I quote next from the Tanisho. Uh, as Yui Embo tells us in the postscript to Tanisho, that we abandon the accommodated and take up the real, set aside the provisional and adopt the true, is the master's fundamental intent, Hongyi. I think I take this in a very strong sense that Chinran uh, really did place this kind of uh, what, transformation or conversion uh, from the accommodated to the real um, and uh, did consider this to be um, at the heart of, heart of his teaching. Uh, in, in this particular passage, uh, Yuen is reflecting on his own composition of Tanisho uh, and explaining why he wrote the work. Uh, and uh, he, he states that, uh, that he is now in old age, um, that he will die before long, uh, that up to now, uh, people who have had questions about the teaching, had doubts uh, about their proper understanding, uh, could come to him and he would be able to relate to them uh, the teaching that he received, uh, including from Shinran. Um, but after he dies, he is afraid uh, that there will be no one uh, in his kind of position uh, who would be able to help those with questions. Uh, and and then uh, he suggests that uh, to those who, who come after him, uh, the solution when they have problems would be to go to the writings, to go to the scriptures, to go to Shinran's writings, and to study them very carefully uh, and try to resolve their their questions. However, he says uh, in the teachings, in the scriptures, in the writings. Uh, there are uh, these uh, two categories, uh, the, the uh, provisional or accommodated and the true and real, and it is important to distinguish between them. Uh, the problem, of course, is how, 
how do you distinguish between uh, the, the accommodated uh, and the real? Uh, and, and this is a kind of issue uh, that UEN leaves unanswered uh, in, in the postscript, but uh, as, as indicated in the quotation here, uh, this, this kind of distinction and this kind of uh, conversion, uh, he feels, uh, was uh, uh, extremely important for Shinran himself. Uh, Shinran's entire e enterprise, the clarification of Jodo Shinshu established by Honen, may be said to turn on his distinction between self-power within the path of other power and authentic engagement, what he terms the realization of Shinjin. Uh, and uh, I will go on uh, later uh, in, in uh, this first hour to discuss this uh, more fully. Uh, but I think uh, Honen's basic issue uh, had to uh, do with distinguishing the Pure Land path as the path of uh, other power, uh, distinguishing uh, the Pure Land teaching uh, from all other forms of Buddhism. Uh, but this is rather different uh, from the task that uh, Shinran himself perceived. Uh, and Shinran's basic concern, uh, as stated here, uh, is distinguishing uh, self-power and other power uh, within the Pure Land path. Uh, and, and again, I think uh, this turns uh, in part on the distinction between the provisional, accommodated, understanding, and teaching. This is, of course, uh, a a problem of how one engages the teaching and, and how the teaching is understood. Uh, a shift from an accommodated provisional understanding to a, an understanding that is true and real. What is striking uh, in Shinran's response to Joshin is the subtlety and elusiveness of this critical boundary line between the stances of self-power and other power. At once totally decisive and from the perspective of our ordinary thinking, perhaps imperceptible. In Chinran's eyes, even so earnest and diligent a disciple as Joshin may be found in the manner of his quest to formulate an understanding of Shinran's Pure Land teaching to be precariously suspended between genuine apprehension and mere intellectual self-satisfaction and self-deception. Where the final issue is Shinran's distinction between the accommodated and the true, it appears that even explicit doctrinal content may fail to be determining what you say is blended. In other words, doctrinally, there is nothing wrong uh, with uh, what Joshin has written. He would get good marks, um, presumably, uh, in Shinshugaku. Uh, and yet, it may all be uh, nothing more than hakarai. How then are we to proceed? How can we find a means for exploring and articulating the insights of Shinran's Pure Land Path without reducing it either to a set of doctrinal propositions or mere complex, or mere complex of historically and socially formed belief and practices? Uh, to begin with, this surely requires reflection on the stance of Shinran himself. 
in his own efforts at a Shinshugaku, an exposition of the true essence of the Pure Land Buddhist path that might effectively uh, convey it to others. Um, and so I, I will go uh, on now to consider um, uh, the, the uh, distinction I uh, drew earlier between Honen's uh, efforts in his own uh, writings uh, in contrast to uh, Shinran's. In order to grasp Shinran's basic orientation in his writings, uh, it is useful to consider the historical backdrop uh, of the chief intellectual issues he was re wrestling with. It was Shinran's master Honen who had achieved perhaps the radical doctrinal innovation of the times by establishing the practice of vocal nambuts as an independent, self-sufficient path of Buddhist praxis. Originally, the practice of Nambuts probably centered on mindfulness exercises conducted in veneration of Shakyamuni Buddha and included elements of bodily worship and reverent repetition of the name of the Buddha. Uh, later, it developed into a basic practice of monastics involving ritual prostrations with the body, contemplation on the features of enlightened beings, and vocal recitation of their names conducted with long lists of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And this, this is a common uh, general Buddhist classification of human action, uh, bodily, uh, sort of mental, uh, verbal. Uh, and this, this, this practice of prostration with an utterance uh, of the name of a Buddha Bodhisattva while um, focused on uh, the virtues or uh, the adornments of, of the individual Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And this practice is essentially the practice of Nembutsu uh, that is taught, for example, uh, in, uh, by Nagarjuna uh, in uh, 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 the Bibasharon, the, um, including uh, the, the um, uh, his presentation of, of the easy path of, of Nembutsu practice and so on. Uh, basically, it is this kind of practice uh, which is still conducted, for example, on, on Mount Hie. Uh, although deeply familiar with such comprehensive modes of practice, embracing physical, mental, and verbal discipline, Honen taught that simply uttering the name of Amida Buddha, Namo Amidavits, Entrusting oneself to his vow to save all beings results in birth in Amida's Buddha field of enlightened activity known as the Pure Land. No intellectual command of Buddhist philosophy, accumulation of merit, moral rectitude, or any act of practice other than the Nembutsu is necessary. According, uh, further, according to Honen's interpretation of the teachings, Amida's Pure Land offers an ideal environment for fulfilling the bodhisattva practices necessary for realizing Buddhahood. Once born there, eventual attainment of Buddhahood becomes fully settled. Um, so essentially in the, the Pure Land path prior to Shinran, uh, birth into the Pure Land meant attainment of the stage of non-retrogression in the Pure Land. Um, because uh, the ideal environment there would support 
uh, your own bodhisattva practices and enable you uh, to eventually uh, realize uh, complete Buddhahood. Uh, the Pure Land Buddhist path, based on the working of Amida's vow, uh, is therefore an effective means towards Buddhahood. For Honen, the only viable way for people at present, given the long absence of an enlightened guide like Gautama Buddha, uh, or the increasingly defiled state of human existence in the world, and it can be practiced independently of any other Buddhist teaching or method of praxis. Uh, so part of our problem in this world, of course, uh, is that there is no Buddha here to guide us, uh, to give us um, uh, uh, direction uh, in, in our, our practice here. Uh, but again, uh, in Pure Land thinking uh, before Shinran, uh, if one were able to be born in Amita's Pure Land, uh, one would be uh, surrounded there by bodhisattvas uh, who are supportive, uh, and, of course, uh, be able to hear uh, the teaching of Dharma uh, by Amitabha Buddha. Uh, and with that kind of environment, uh, uh, one's eventual attainment of Buddhahood uh, becomes settled. While traditionally, uh, the Nembutsu practice involved uh, mental concentration and the accumulation of numerous recitations, Honen taught that in the Pure Land path, only the simple saying of Namo Amidabutsu with complete trust was involved. There was no specified number of a manner of utterance, no necessity for any accompanying ritual or meditative endeavor, and no stipulation on the length of the period of practice or number of recitations. Uh, so one, one calling of the Nembutsu uh, was sufficient. Uh, one, one utterance of the Nembutsu uh, with trust in Amitya's vow uh, was sufficient. The question, of course, is why mere vocalization of Amitya's name should hold the power to bring about birth into a Buddha field and eventual enlightenment, uh, which in our present condition is virtually impossible to, to accomplish, even through the achievement of extensive learning, deep meditative states, heroic discipline, and compassionate action. Uh, one can undertake such practices and not come any step closer uh, to attainment, but merely uttering with, with the voice, with the mouth, Namami Dabatsu, uh, trusting in a misfau, uh, can bring us to attainment. Why is this possible? Without an adequate demonstration that vocal Nembutsu held such power, pure land praxis would remain a supplementary discipline within the existing schools of Buddhist tradition. One supportive practice to be performed in combination uh, with a panoply of other methods. Honen promulgated his teaching by adopting an innovative perspective on the nature of the practices taught in Buddhist tradition. He reasoned that Although the utterance of the Buddhist name had, a had, had, a long, had long been transmitted in various Buddhist schools as one among countless different kinds of practice useful for attainment of enlightenment, the vocal Nembutsu designated in Amida's vow as the act leading to birth into the Pure Land was qualitatively distinct from every one of the thousands of other techniques found uh, in the Buddhist teachings. In other words, the Nembutsu uh, of uh, Amida's vow 
uh, is completely different, qualitatively distinct from any other Buddhist practice taught uh, in uh, the sutras and commentaries. Well, the physical act of voicing the name of Amida in itself might be identical. In other words, although on Mount Hie, uh, the same sort of practice could be undertaken. In other forms of Buddhism, it was performed uh, together with various other practices, including the awakening of the aspiration for enlightenment and the selfless transference of merit. And like other practices, its fulfillment as practice, practice genuinely leading toward Buddhahood, turned on the practitioner's own purity of motive and powers of concentration and discipline. The Nambutsu taught in Amida's vow, however, as a simple voicing of Namami Dabutsu, except accessible to all beings regardless of their moral qualities or spiritual capacities, was specifically selected by Amida Buddha as the means by which he could bring to fruition his compassionate vow to liberate all living beings from samsaric existence. In other words, Amida, through his vow and the salvific virtue of his own already completed performance of endless eons of bodhisattva practices, established the saying of the name as the medium by which his own compassionate working actively reaches each being. Thus, the Nambutsu has been prepared, already fulfilled by Amida as the act resulting uh, in birth in the Pure Land and given to beings as a cause of their attainment. Salvific activity is particularly appropriate in, in, in the present age uh, when the accomplishment of praxis as ordinarily understood in Buddhist tradition has receded beyond the reach of beings. Anticipating this situation, Amida's vow teaches uh, that one should relinquish the illusions and attachments focused on the self and its capacities and set aside the extensive body of traditional methods of praxis as no longer effective since they require a purity of performance no longer achievable. The Pure Land tradition characterizes such practices as self-power and advocates instead a turn to the saying of the Nembutsu as the act that embodies other power, Amida's wisdom, compassion, functioning in the world. Two aspects of Honen's historical role relate directly to our concerns here with Shinran's methodology in interpreting and articulating his religious awareness. The means by which Honen effected his groundbreaking contribution to Buddhist tradition and Honen's legacy as inherited by his disciples. Regarding the first, Honen is recognized as the first and perhaps most revolutionary founder of a native Japanese Buddhist tradition. Based on his principle of the Nambutsu selected in Amida's primal vow, Senjaku Hongan Nembutsu. Uh, and of course, this is the Nembutsu that is qualitatively distinct from all other practices, in, including a kind of Nembutsu uh, done in self-power. Uh, the Nembutsu selected in Amida's primal vow as the practice embodying the Buddha's other power. <clears throat> Based on this, uh, Honen established the Pure Land School as an authentic Buddhist path, effective in itself and independent from the traditionally recognized schools uh, that had been transmitted 
to Japan from the Asian continent over the preceding centuries. Honen set about to accomplish this in his major writing, that is to, uh, to, to establish the Pure Land School based on um, the Nembuts of the Primal Vow. Uh, accomplished this in his major writing, a collection on the Nembuts selected in the Primal Vow, the Senjaku Honga Nembutsushub, uh, composed in Kambun in Chinese and addressed to an audience versed in Buddhist erudition and its methods of discourse. Here, Honen systematically raises the traditional issues involved in recognizing uh, the Pure Land teaching as a legitimate school of Buddhism, such as the identification of foundational sutras. In other words, this is a kind of pan-Buddhist um, uh, discussion that it gives. Uh, any Buddhist school has to have, has to identify its foundational sutras, the delineation, uh, the historical lineage of masters by which the Pure Land Path has been transmitted down to the present and its doctrinal orthodoxy uh, demonstrated with reference to the sutras and the commentarial tradition. That is, uh, with many quotations, uh, citations uh, from uh, uh, the, um, the textual tradition. Uh, in his work, Honen argues logically and cogently on the basis of scriptural evidence, including extended citations from the recognized Chinese canon. Honen allowed his work to be copied only by disciples during his lifetime, but it was published shortly after his death. It immediately garnered vehement censure and counter-argument uh, from scholar monks of traditional schools, attesting to the impact uh, Honen's Nembutsu teaching was already having in Japanese society, but also to the recognition of the forms of scholastic discourse and rational argument into which his thought had been cast. Uh, in other words, uh, Honen had entered into this sort of pan-Buddhist uh, inter-school uh, 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 discourse argument uh, 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 taking uh, the same uh, basis as as the, the Buddhist scholarship of his day, uh, and the answer came back uh, in the same kind of form. From the accounts of his followers and records of his spoken words and letters, it appears that Honen uh, was an immensely charismatic figure uh, communicating his teaching to both the ordained and lay and pers persuasively responding to questions of his many listeners uh, from all walks of life. Nevertheless, the major formulation of his religious thought followed customary models dictated by his formidable role in Buddhist history. And this leads uh, to the second element of uh, Shinran, of Honen's role, the transmission of his legacy. And what, what I have tried to set up here is, is a contrast uh, between Honen's method, uh, Honen Senjaku Hongan Nembutsushu, and Shinran's method, and I, I hope uh, this will be, uh, uh, this will cast some light on uh, Shinran's own methodology, uh, which I speak of here as, as a phenomenology of religious life, uh, and uh, quite different from the, the uh, kind of traditional Buddhist scholarly discourse um, that we see in uh, the Senjakushu. It is commonly assumed 
And that Shinran's major writing, The True Teaching, Practice, and Realization of the Pure Land Way, or Kyogyo Shomondri, <clears throat> also composed in Kanbun uh, with 90% of the text made up of quotations from the Buddhist canon. In other words, it, it appears uh, on the page uh, very similar <clears throat> uh, to the ordinary uh, kind of scholarly Buddhist uh, text uh, of the period and very similar to uh, to Sanjakshu. Uh, it is uh, often asserted, often assumed that Shinran wrote Kyogyosho Mondri uh, to respond to scholar monks of the established schools who had criticized Sanjakshu and that therefore it is likewise a treatise in the form of scholastic argumentation. Uh, and uh, although I, I don't go into this here, uh, part of this uh, has to do uh, with uh, sections of uh, Kyogyo Shomondri that do deal uh, with the issues raised uh, in criticisms of uh, Honen. While Shinran certainly composed the work for readers trained in reading Buddhist texts, and although he employs formal elements of conventional discourse, the spirit of his writing is more accurately indicated uh, by the record of his spoken words taken up below. Uh, and I'm referring to Tanisha in, in a passage I will consider later. Um, from the time of his conversion at the age of 29 to his death at 91, Shinran speaks of himself as a disciple of his master Honen, who had changed his life. Never does Shinran describe his task as other than articulating and transmitting an accurate grasp of Honen's teaching, particularly to the people of the countryside among whom he preached. His historical role, therefore, differs from his master's. While Honen worked to establish the legitimacy of the Pure Land Buddhist school, that is to establish Pure Land teaching as a school among other schools of Buddhism, Shinran sought uh, uh, clarification by distinguishing uh, between uh, provisional and true understandings within the true, uh, the Pure Land path. And, and this is, of course, the topic I raised earlier, the idea of uh, a self-power within the other power teaching um, and Shinran's concern to distinguish between self-power and other power within Honen's teaching of self-power. Not, not Honen's teaching so much as the reception of uh, Honen's teaching, which Shinran, of course, took to be uh, the other power within other power. Uh, in, order, uh, in order to understand this more fully, we must turn to the second aspect of Honen's position in, in the tradition. As we have seen, Honen asserted uh, that the Nembutsu, as imparted to beings in Amida's vow, differs profoundly from all other practices hand down, handed down in Buddhist tradition. Persons might, therefore, perform the utterance of the Buddhist name as other another means of healing the mind and gaining merit in continuous recitation or as an element of ritual worship or contemplative practice, or they might say the name as the act prescribed in Amida's vow, entrusting themselves wholly to the working of the Buddha's compassion and abandoning any notion of their own goodness or effort as contributing 
to realization. And of course, the latter is Honen Senjaku Honga Non Nembutsu. The former manifests self power, the latter, other power. Honen taught that it is only the latter that remains operative now for us. However, a serious difficulty in understanding understanding this teaching arose among Honen's following. One Honen struggled to deal with, but was unable to resolve doctrinally. Uh, And I will uh, go into this uh, briefly. This is, of course, um, the debate between one's calling and many calling, uh, which arose during Honen's lifetime, uh, which he addressed, which some of his disciples addressed, uh, which Honen, uh, which Shinran also addressed, uh, but which has been um, in the tradition uh, a very persistent uh, difficulty in understanding Honen's teaching. Uh, disciples found that the Nembutsu of Amida's vow, as proclaimed by Honen, in fact involves two elements, both of which are essential. On the one hand, the actual saying of Amida's name, Namo Amidabutsu, and on the other, the wholehearted entrusting of oneself to Amida's vow, which, as we have seen, is precisely what qualitatively distinguishes vocal Nembutsu from all other methods of practice and makes one's performance of it the practice selected for beings as already fulfilled by Amida. Uh, uh, In other words, uh, the Honan's qualitative distinction, excuse me, qualitative distinction uh, between uh, the Nembutsu of Amida's vow and all other uh, Buddhist practices uh, finally turns essentially on the trust or uh, the entrusting to Amida's vow. If there is complete entrusting uh, to the vow of Amida in saying the Nembutsu, then that Nembutsu is uh, the Nembutsu Honen teaches as the Nembutsu of other power. If there is not the trust in the uh, the vow, then the nembutsu becomes another form of the kind of practice that was conducted on the day and still is uh, on Mount Hie and other uh, other places uh, a kind of self-power uh, use of nembutsu practice as a kind of mindfulness practice uh, or a kind of uh, ritual practice. Uh, so. It, it looked to disciples that you need not only say the Nembutsu to fulfill um, the, what is uh, required of beings in Bayamita's Primal Vow, but you also have to have um, trust. Uh, and this, these look like two different elements. Uh, for Honen, these two elements of practice and faith utterance of the Nembutsu and the trusting of oneself to Amida's vow were mutually and unproblematically interfused. But many who sought to follow his teaching uh, found that in actual engagement, the path appeared to be defined by emphasis on one element or the other. The question became for many followers, which is central in the life lived in genuine accord with Amida's vow, practice, or faith. In other words, concretely, 
how should persons of the Nembutsu carry on their lives? Those who emphasized practice tended to assume that since the Nembutsu was devised and provided out of <coughs> Amida's wisdom compassion, those who entrust themselves to Amida's vow will spontaneously, out of joy and gratitude, seek to live in the mindfulness of Amida and to recite the name uh, as often as possible throughout the remainder of their lives. This view, however, sometimes shaded into ethical and eschatological concerns. Some assumed that practitioners of the Nembutsu should seek to live lives appropriate for birth into Amida's Buddha field, lives of diligent recitation and moral rectitude. Those who failed to display uh, such dedication were viewed as negligent in their practice. Further, many adopted older views in which Nembutsu recitation was seen pragmatically as a means of canceling the karmic effects of one's past evil. This latter belief gave decisive weight to the Nembutsu uttered at the moment of death, when the nullification of one's final defilements of karmic evil made birth uh, in the Pure Land possible. By contrast, those who emphasized faith tended toward a more relaxed view of Nembutsu recitation uh, and other forms of religious observance or moral rigor, insisting instead on a total trust in Amida's compassion. The Pure Land Sutras speak of ten or even a single utterance as adequate, and Honan affirms this teaching. Since the name, as prepared for beings by Amida, holds the resultant virtues of his inconceivably long and perfect practice, when one takes refuge in the vow and utters the Nembutsu, one's salvation is promised by Amida and one should have no misgivings. At, ex at an extreme, however, insistence on leaving all to Amida's salvific activity led to forms of antinomianism in which even moral restraint was viewed as an impulse to deny the fact of one's cravings and affirm one's own goodness. In more benign forms, emphasis on trust led to a denigration of continued utterance as evidence of doubt of the, of the vow's power and as a residue of attachment to one's own action in bringing about attainment. In other words, uh, to recite the name often uh, would show uh, some sort of doubt that a single utterance was, in fact, all that was necessary and was in itself effective. Honen sought to maintain a tenuous balance between these two mutually disparaging positions of emphasis on practice, praxis and emphasis on faith. In other words, these were two uh, parties um, that fell into debate and sometimes the debate was quite bitter um, so that they, these two kinds of Nembutsu practice both stemming from Honen's teaching or stemming from understandings of Honen's teaching, um, these two positions uh, would be taken and um, a harsh criticism would be get, uh, directed to the opposite position. Honen uh, sought this kind of resolution. If, because it is taught uh, that birth is attained with but one or ten utterances, and again, this is in uh, the sutras, uh, if, uh, because it's taught this, you say the Nembutsu heedlessly, then faith is hindering practice. 
if because it is taught in the commentaries, and this is uh, Zendo's commentaries, uh, that you should say the name without abandoning it from moment to moment, you believe one or ten utterances to be indecisive, then practice is hindering faith. As your faith accept that birth is attained with a single utterance, as your practice endeavored in the Nembutsu throughout life. And so, Honen, this is Honen's solution. He, he sought to balance uh, these two attitudes to resolve uh, the, the internal, uh, what appeared to be a kind of internal contradiction uh, uh, in, in this way. Historically, however, we find that while Honen was able to transmit his insights uh, through his own compelling presence, after his death, his disciples developed their individual interpretations of his Nembutsu teaching in diverse directions, with some tending toward emphasis on Nembutsu practice and others toward trust in the vow. The master, in short, had failed to achieve a clear doctrinal resolution of this issue in, of religious life. And uh, I just uh, go on uh, briefly. Uh, uh, with, with Shinran's position, the core concerns of Shinran's Pureland teaching. As I've noted, uh, Shinran understood himself throughout his six decades of teaching activity as faithfully transmitting the path of Nembutsu established by Honen. And there's no evidence anywhere in his writings that he viewed his own work as more than a clarification of the master's meaning, that is, what he calls the true essence of the Pureland wage, although Shinshu. Perhaps the central issue that Shinran found in need of clarification after Honen's death was the entrenched tendency toward bifurcation of the Nembutsu path into practice and trust described above. And it may be said that his stance regarding this issue informs the basic structure of his thought. This bears on our concerns here because his resolution of it close, is closely tied uh, to his delineation of the Pure Land Buddhist path. I will consider his approach briefly, focusing solely for the sake of convenience on a single passage of Tanisho. Um, uh, the following words, apparently in response uh, to questions from close uh, disciples, comprise one of the best-known sections of Tanisho, uh, Tanisho uh, the section two. And I, I want to insist here uh, that this is uh, that other passages, uh, including from Kyogyo Shinshu could be uh, used here. Um, this, is, this is not a kind of isolated instance of uh, emphasis on, on Tanisho. Uh, but I, I would just like to read the passage. Uh, the aim with which each of you has made your way here, traversing the borders of more than 10 provinces with no heed for your bodily safety or life, is wholly to ask about the path to birth in the land of bliss. Uh, but if sensing something in me uh, you imagine that I know a path to birth other than the Nembutsu or that I am familiar with special writings of the Dharma, it is indeed a great error. Or should that be the case, and since there are many eminent scholars, scholar monks uh, in Nara and on Mount Hie, you would do better to meet with such people and inquire fully of them about the essentials for birth. For myself, beyond receiving and entrusting myself to the words spoken by a good person, and this of course refers to his master Honen, uh, just say the Nambutsu and be saved by Mita. Nothing whatsoever is involved beyond beyond this. Isn't it? 
uh, beyond receiving and entrusting myself, nothing whatsoever is involved. Uh, whether the Nambutsu is truly the seed for being born in the pure land, or whether it is uh, karma that causes one to fall into hell, I, do, I know not at all. Even in the instance that I've been deceived by Master Honen and by doing the Nambutsu end up plunging into hell, I will have no regrets whatsoever. The reason is this. It is a person who could have attained Buddhahood by endeavoring in other practices who would surely regret having been deceived if he fell into hell because of saying the Nambutsu. But my existence is such that fulfilling any practice is beyond reach. Uh, so it is clear that hell is my settled dwelling, whatever I might do. If Amida's vow is true and real, Chakamuni's teaching cannot be lies. Uh, if the Buddha's teaching is true and real, Shandao's commentaries cannot be lies. If Shandao's commentaries are true and real, can what Honen said be a lie? If what Honen said is true and real, then surely my own words cannot be empty. Such, in essence, uh, is the Shinjin of the foolish person I am. Beyond this, whether you entrust yourself taking up the Nembutsu, whether you abandon it, it must be a matter for your, of your own reckoning. From the opening words of this a very well-known passage, it is possible to grasp the circumstances in which they were delivered. Shinran has spent had spent approximately 20 years preaching and building a network of Nembutsu practitioners in various villages of the Kanto region. Then about the age of 63, he returned to Kyoto for reasons still variously conjectured, leaving his following under the guidance of a number of disciples uh, in the different areas and devoting himself to writing in relative seclusion. The words recorded in Tanisho 2 are thought to have been spoken nearly 20 years after his return, following his departure from Kanto, diverse strains of uh, the Pure Land teaching gradually spread confusion among his adherents, uh, who were also subjected to persecution by the local authorities and to harsh denunciations of the Nembutsu teaching uh, by followers of other schools. In moments of difficulty, uh, disciples who acted as leaders in the various locales wrote to Shinran about their problems and he responded with detailed answers, short commentaries and writings and copies of tracts by others of Onen's uh, disciples. Uh, the words recorded in Tanisho too were spoken when followers apparently felt compelled to make the arduous journey um, from the Kanto area to see the master in person seeking reassurance uh, even as Shinran knows uh, at the risk of their lives. Nevertheless, Shinran responds with some severity. And here I, I um, sort of moving into a discussion of Shinran's methodology. If you seek from me special knowledge, and that is Shinran understands uh, the nature of his own charismatic presence for his followers. Uh, if you seek from me some special knowledge or scriptural evidence confirming uh, the Nembutsu path, you have made a big mistake. In that case, you should go elsewhere. And this is Shinran's response, of course. Instead of answering with doctrinal analysis or scriptural evidence, Shinran offers simply his own example. For myself, beyond receiving and entrusting myself to the words spoken by a good person, just say the Nembutsu and be saved by Mida. Nothing whatsoever is involved. Several distinctive and fundamental aspects of Shinran's approach to communicating the Nembutsu teaching may be noted here. And uh, I, I will uh, continue uh, with 
with this um, after a break.